All right. Well, this morning I am beginning a new sermon series. Now that Easter has come and gone, we're going to be going through the New Testament book of First Peter, and I've entitled this sermon series uh, "Stranger." And you're going to find out as we read it. It's a theme throughout the book of First Peter that we are strangers in this world; that this world is not our true home. And so I'm going to use that as kind of the theme as we go through the book of First Peter. Before we begin, though, going through 1 Peter, can I just take a couple minutes and remind us why we take the Bible so seriously? Why, when we gather together, I'm not just giving a TED Talk or uh, my own thoughts on the state of the world, but that we come together to look at God's Word, the Bible, to understand what it has to say. Why do we do this? Why are we a people who center ourselves around the Word of God? Well, let me remind you uh, what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. He said, all Scripture is God-breathed. Theonoustos in Greek. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why do we take the Bible seriously? Why do we gather together? Do we go through what the Bible has to say and not what my thoughts are? Because the Bible is God's word. Theonoustos, breathed out by God, written down by people such as Peter and Paul. It goes to the very heart of what it means to be a human being, to live in this world. I mean, think about it. How do you know who you are, what your identity is? How do you know how you're supposed to live in this world? Our culture, I'm sure most of you are familiar, would tell you to look within, right? Look in your heart. What's in your heart? And follow the feelings you find in your heart. And that's how you're going to find out who you are and what your identity is and what your purpose is. But if there is a God who has created you, then the most logical thing you can do is to get to know the creator and to understand what he has created you for, who he says that you are, right? I mean, if you want to know how to use any sort of tool, any sort of instrument, the best thing you can do is to read the manual, understand how this microphone is supposed to work, how this car is supposed to work. You read the manual, you read the instructions, you get to know how the creator designed it so that you don't break it, so that you don't use it in a way that is contrary to its design. I mean, I could decide to brush my teeth with a hammer, but it's going to cause significant injury most likely because I'm using it not according to its design. So if you want to know who you are, what your identity is and how to live, what your purpose is in this world, I would encourage you not to go looking within to figure out, well, what's going on on the inside and how do I feel and living according to that. But you were designed, you were created with a purpose, you were created according to a creator's calling and plan. So get to know the creator, the designer, and get to know his manual for living, his word, the Bible. So as we begin this letter, I want you to begin approaching it from that perspective. This is a word from God for you to help you understand what it means to be a person in this world, what it means to live as a human being. So we're going to read chapter 1 this morning of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father 
through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he, call, he who called you is holy, so be it holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. And now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Amen. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. God, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come knowing that this is not just the words of man, but these are the words of God. And so help us, Lord, to open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts to understand and, and recognize the word of God, to be transformed by these words and by your spirit that speaks to us through these words. Have your way among us, we pray. May your glory fall. May your spirit be at work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So going back to the beginning, we find that this letter was written by Peter, who was one of Jesus' 12 apostles, the 12 disciples that were called to follow Jesus and now have been sent out into the world, basically, to be witnesses to Jesus, to tell the world about Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. He calls himself an apostle. 
sent by God. And he's being sent, he's sending this letter out to uh, all these places. He says the people who are scattered, the Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is now modern day Turkey, to encourage them during a season of persecution. So remembering, this is God's word. This is God's word that has a lot to say to us about who we are, what our identity is, what our purpose is, how to live in this world. If I had to sum up the message here of what he is telling them that we are, I would say this, that we are chosen by God for obedience to Jesus as strangers in this world. This kind of thesis statement that he gives at the beginning lays out the foundation, the framework that he's going to use as he goes through this letter to them, that we've been chosen, we are chosen by God for obedience to Jesus as strangers in this world. Chosen by God, but living in this world as strangers. Now, this whole theme of being chosen by God, you know, it's, it's, it's something that can go all down all kinds of rabbit trails, but I'm not planning on going down those rabbit trails. I want to just focus on three things in particular that this means this morning. First of all, being chosen by God means that you've been justified, adopted, and regenerated by God. These are three terms that if you've been around here the last couple of months, hopefully these are familiar to you by now because they were themes that came up in 2 Corinthians that we read through before Easter. That you've been justified, adopted, and regenerated by God. You have been chosen by God. You, yeah, you. You've been chosen by God, that he has initiated an invitation. He's come after you. He's inviting you into a relationship with him to an eternally significant purpose for your life. You're chosen. And I know there's a lot of mystery around that term, but the language is just meant to encourage you that this is not just your choice, not just a choice you made, but that God has initiated this relationship and chosen you and revealed Jesus to you. And because he has chosen you, you belong to him and he has a purpose for you. Think about what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 12 through 16. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. You see that last line there? It's what I'm saying, that we've been chosen by God. We've been chosen for obedience to Jesus. I've chosen you to send you out, to bear fruit, to do the good works that I've called you to that will last eternally. There's the language in there of an eternal significance that he has called you to, that he has chosen you for, that you are not just an accident here, but that God is initiating a relationship with you, calling you to himself, to an eternally significant purpose and relationship. And that language that I mentioned of being justified, adopted, and regenerated is language that shows up all throughout this chapter in 1 Peter. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That language of Jesus as the Lamb of God goes back all the way to the Old Testament of the lamb that was slain, this Passover lamb that was slain to pay the penalty for their sins. It goes back to the Passover 
And the blood was put on the doorpost that the angel of God would pass over the, door, the, the homes and spare them. And Jesus says, is that lamb of God who was slain? That by his blood, we are saved. We are justified. We are declared not guilty. This word justification means it's the legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and he declares us to be righteous in his sight. That's God as the judge. That by Jesus' death on the cross, our sins are forgiven and he declares us righteous, right in his sight, perfect in the sight of God. Even though you know you're not perfect, right? You know you look at yourself in the mirror and you know you're far from perfect. The miracle is, the good news, the gospel is, that by faith in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. They're all put on Jesus on the cross. His perfection is given to us. And now when God looks at you, he sees you as righteous, as perfect. 2 Corinthians 5.21 sums it up. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Take that verse to heart, that God made Jesus who was sinless to be sin for us on the cross, to take our sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might be made right with God. We're justified. God the judge declaring us not guilty, perfect in his sight. We don't have to fear. We don't have to live in shame or condemnation or guilt anymore. We're perfect in the sight of God. But that's not all he's done. Look at the love, Romans 5, 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Second thing that he does for us, not just justifying us, declaring us not guilty, but he adopts us. Adoption is the act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. Because any judge can declare you not guilty and then let you go and not enter into a relationship with you. But God is not just a judge. God is a father. God not only declares us not guilty as judge, but he also welcomes us into his family as father, adopting us as his beloved children. Praise God. We're adopted as children of God. Again, going back to what Peter wrote in his chapter there, he said, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Notice he's both judge and father there, right? Just what I'm saying. He's not only judge, he's father. And he's called you into a relationship with himself, chosen you to be his adopted children. And you can come to God, not as some judge, not as some being up in the sky, but as a beloved father who loves you. That kind of intimacy. John chapter one, yet to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Part of what it means to be adopted as God's children is means that we have an inheritance. Everything that is God the Father's now belongs to us. Again, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, he said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance 
that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you understand how wealthy you are? (laughs) And I'm not speaking as some health and wealth preacher, you know, saying that God is going to pour out material blessing on you in this life. I am saying that God has an inheritance kept in heaven for you that is beyond anything this world could ever offer. And I have no idea what I'm talking about, I know, because it's so far beyond anything that any eye has seen, any ear has heard, any mind has conceived. But you are wealthy beyond all wealth, not just materially, but in relationship with him, with all that God has for you. You are an adopted child of God. Do not trade that inheritance for anything in this world. But that's not all. You're not just justified by God the judge, not just adopted by God the Father, but you are also regenerated. The act of God by which he imparts spiritual, eternal life to us. This is God as heart surgeon, taking out a heart that was a heart of stone that did not know God, that did not respond to God, replacing it with a heart that knows God, that responds to him, that loves him, that knows his love. So God chooses you and calls you to obedience and then gives you a heart that is able to obey. 1 Peter 1.3, going back again, he said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then later in the chapter, he says this, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. I know that phrase carries with it all kinds of cultural baggage, but Peter is just saying, that it's not about your physical birth. That's not what makes you right with God as being born to Christian parents, being born and going to church. It's about the new birth. It's about God putting his Holy Spirit in you, replacing the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, a heart that can know and respond to God. That's the new birth. As I mentioned last week, I can look back at my life. There's a before and after. When I was 18 years old, I came to faith in Christ and I can look back and somehow I look at how there became this desire to know God that had never been there before. I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to read as much as I could about God, whereas before I, had, I couldn't have cared less. The Bible came alive, and it was as if it was speaking to me in a way that it never had, whereas before it had just been this dry book. There was a sensitivity to sin in my life that had not been there before, where before I just thought it was stuff I was doing, and now I looked at it as this is not good for me or for other people. There was a desire to spend time in fellowship with other believers. There was a pull to worship God. All of these things, nobody taught me. It was God putting his Holy Spirit in me, giving me new birth. I had been born again. I was different. I was changed. And if that has never happened to you, if that makes no sense to you, then ask God to reveal yourself to him, to give you this new birth, to put his Holy Spirit in you. God has chosen you, not because of anything special you've done. Remember why he said he chose Israel? He said, you weren't the greatest, you know, you weren't the largest, you were the tiniest of all nations, but I chose you because I love you. And this language of God choosing you is just meant to assure your heart that he loves you, that he has initiated this relationship with you, that he has called you to himself and to an eternally significant purpose. But he hasn't just chosen you. You are also strangers in this world. And what that means is that, first of all, this world is not your home. Did you know that? Even though you might have an address, 
in Wethersfield, in Rocky Hill, in Glastonbury, wherever you live, you might have a physical address. This world is not your home. You are a stranger in this world. 1 Peter 1, 1 again, he begins by saying, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He addresses the Christians as strangers scattered throughout the world. The word there for strangers is parapitamois, which you can translate it different ways. The best translation would probably be resident aliens. And those of you who are young, aliens does not mean creatures from outer space. A resident alien is someone who lives in a country, but they're not citizens of that country. They're not tourists. They're not just here to visit, but they're not citizens either. They're resident aliens. They're citizens of another country who are living in this country. Some of you, when I've had conversations with you, you talk about home being somewhere else still, right? Even though you live here, you still talk about home you know, as if it's home is in Indiana, home's in Florida, home's in Texas, or home's in Columbia or in England. Because even though you live here, your heart is still somewhere else, right? That still feels like home to you. And that's kind of the, the idea here, that we're strangers in this world, that even though we live in our physical addresses here, our heart is elsewhere. Our true home is not in this world. This world is not your home. I mean, think about what makes your home your home. For most of us, I'd say what makes your home your home is that it, it, it fits you, right? And the bed just fits you just right. You've set it up with the right kind of pillows, the right kind of sheets, the right kind of mattress. It fits you. You know, it, it fits, the home fits you with, with your height, with your weight, with your abilities. It just feels like, okay, this, this house fits me. And when you go away and you stay in different hotels and different places, Sure, it might be nice, but it doesn't necessarily fit you. And to say that this world is not our home means that there's many ways in which this world just doesn't fit us. It doesn't feel right. It's not our home. When you look back throughout the Bible, this theme follows, doesn't it? You look, think of Abraham being called by God to leave and to go into a place that God would show him. And then you think of the Exodus and the Israelites being called out of Egypt, wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Exiles, resident aliens, strangers. And then you think of the Israelites again being sent into exile in Babylon. Again, they're exiles, dispersed, scattered among the nations. The reason is you go all the way back to Genesis. And what, what do you see in the beginning? Exile, exiled from the garden. This world is not our home. If it doesn't feel right to you, it doesn't feel like it fits, it's because it's not your home. If you just walk through this world and you're just like, it just doesn't, I just feel like a stranger in this world. I just feel like it doesn't fit. It's because this world is not your home. And you can keep looking for this grass that's greener and somewhere else, but you're not gonna find it this side of eternity. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. 
This world is not your home. You're strangers here. But one day he will return. One day he will take us to be home with him. In this you greatly rejoice, Peter wrote, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's when Jesus returns. Remember, Peter's writing to a people that are suffering. He's encouraging them. Listen, I know you're suffering, but this world is not your home, and you're going to suffer, and this suffering is going to prove that your faith is genuine. And then on that day when you're with Jesus, oh, it's going to result in praise and honor and glory. It's going to result in joy when you are finally home, when you are finally with the Lord, and you realize, oh, this is what I was created for. I mean, I love when I read through 1 Peter 1, just the, the, the affections, the language of joy. You know, there's so much language there of joy and love and celebration. Not in this world. But he says, oh, it's going to be so much joy when we're with him. This world is not your home. If anyone was the resident alien, the exile, it was Jesus, wasn't it? Remember he said this? They were walking along and a man said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. <laughs> I mean, Jesus was the ultimate resident alien, the re- ultimate stranger. He left heaven, talk about a place that fit him, where he was one with the Father and the Spirit. And he left and he came down here to live among us. And you never find anywhere in the Gospels where it says Jesus invited people over to his home. You know, we don't know where Jesus lived, how he lived, but there's a clue here where he's like, I got no place to lay my head. This world is not my home. But Jesus became the exile, the resident alien, so that we might have a home in heaven. So this is what it means that this world is not your home. Third point, last point is this. Put your primary identity, values, and hope in Christ. If this world is not your home... Don't make it your home. You have to have a different kind of relationship with this place if it's not your home. If your heart is elsewhere and your home is elsewhere, there's going to have to be a different relationship that you have, particularly when it comes to your identity, your values, and your hope. Again, looking back at 1 Peter, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who calls you is holy... That word holy means to be set apart, to be different. So be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. It says, you are a stranger in this world, so live holy lives, set apart. Don't be like the people of this world in the way you live. Don't give in to the empty way of life they've handed down to you. It's empty. You're going to have to be different than them in your identity, in your values, and in your hope. Because this world is not your home. So start with the identity. Did you know that when you come to Christ, your primary identity is that you are a Christian You are a follower of Christ. You belong to Jesus. That is your primary identity above any other identity marker. You're not primarily African-American, Asian-American, 
Irish, Italian, whatever. It's not your primary identity anymore. Your primary identity is your Christian. Your primary identity isn't in your profession anymore. It's not that you're a lawyer or a teacher or a homemaker or an engineer, but you're a Christian first and a lawyer, engineer, homemaker second. Your identity as a Christian is above your political allegiances, right? I'm not a Republican first or a Democrat first. I'm a Christian first. Whatever you look to as your identity in this world that separates you and marks you off from other people, he says it's all secondary because your citizenship is not here. Your citizenship, your home is in heaven, and that is your primary identity. And so any church, any Christian group that divides themselves among ethnicities, political parties, anything like that is missing the point that our identity is primary, first and foremost, as Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. Because this world is not your home, not only is your primary identity in Christ, but your primary values are also in Christ. Peter says, don't live according to the empty way of life that's been handed down to you by your forefathers. There is a lot out there that is just an empty way of life. Do not live according to the empty way that this world teaches you to live. This can take all kinds of forms. Maybe, what about, let's not live for the American dream as our number one pursuit that our goal in life is to live in the suburbs with 2.5 kids in the picket fence, you know, in a comfortable place. It's not our goal anymore. That our goal is to follow Christ wherever he leads, that it's more blessed to give than receive, that the treasure that we're accumulating is in heaven and not on this earth. That we don't believe the lie that following your sexual desires in this world is where happiness and joy is found, but that submitting ourselves to God's design, that is where joy is found, even if the world finds it odd or offensive. That we don't follow the values of a cancel culture that is looking to call out and punish people forever for their sins but that we instead are a people who are quick to forgive those who confess, those who repent, just as we've been forgiven. Yet we don't live in a culture in this church as Christians where we divide people into categories based on their race, based on their ethnicity, based on their gender, based on their socioeconomic status. Believing that somehow that's going to bring equity and unity to this world. No. Instead, we go into this world treating every single individual as made in the image of God and full of dignity and worth. We don't go out into this world putting our hope in any politician, any political party, selling our soul to their agenda but instead we cast our allegiance with Christ first and foremost as prophets against our culture, calling him to obedience to Christ. 
I could go on and on, but again, I'm encouraging you. Our primary values are the values of the kingdom, not the values of our culture. And that is going to mean that you are probably going to suffer. You're probably going to offend. Not because you're looking to be offensive, but because you're looking to be faithful to the Lord. And it's going to cause friction with the culture and the values of this culture. That's why in 1 Peter 1.13, he begins the therefore section by saying this, therefore, prepare your minds for action. In, in the Greek, it's that gird up your loins, like prepare for battle, like get ready, okay? If you're going to follow God, prepare for action. Be self-controlled. Don't just be offensive for being offensive. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Put your hope there, Right? Because if you follow the values of the kingdom, you're going to offend. You're going to suffer. Because not everyone's going to agree with you. This world is not your home. Put your primary identity in Christ, your primary values in Christ. And then lastly, your primary hope. Your primary hope is in Christ. Again, 1 Peter 1.3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where is your hope? You know, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What is it you're looking forward to? What is it that convinces you the future's going to be better than it is today? What's your hope in this world? If your hope is in anything in this world, you're in a dangerous place. You know, if your hope is in your own success in business, your hope is in relationships, your hope is in your health. If your hope is in anything in this world, you're building your house on sand. You're in a dangerous place because this world is passing away. So Tim Keller put it this way. If your ultimate love and joy is found in the treasures of this world, then suffering will rob you of your joy and make you sadder and madder. But if your ultimate love and joy is found in God, then suffering will drive you deeper into the source of that joy. Peter says that you have been born again into a living hope. You've been given a new birth into a living hope. You know what he means by living hope? It's a hope that won't die. It's a hope that can't be taken away by the suffering and circumstances of this world. If your hope is in your marriage, in another person, then when that dissolves when that person dies, then what? If your hope is in your children, what happens when your children's lives don't go according to your plan? If your hope is in your job or in your finances, what happens when the job and finances don't go the way you had hoped? Put your hope in the Lord, in a living hope that will never be taken away, that is yours forever. And then even if you suffer, even if someone dies, even if things don't go according to plan in this world, if your hope is in the Lord, then even that suffering can push you deeper into your hope. We're chosen by God for obedience to Jesus. But we're strangers in this world. So I'm encouraging you this morning, put your hope and joy in the Lord. Even if the world rejects you, even if you suffer, he is all that you need. Let's respond in, in prayer. And in worship. God, we do pray that you would help us to 
put this into action, what it means that this world is not our home, what it looks like to live as resident aliens, as strangers in this world, with our home and our heart in heaven. To have our primary identity in you, our primary values in you, our primary hope in you, God. Help us to be faithful to you, to live and walk in obedience to you. For you have called us and you've given us a purpose of eternal significance, God. So help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.